Angels won. Someone had to mention that, didn't they? It was fun to be at the game with 50 of my closest friends. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I love going as a church. And if you missed it, it was a great time last night where a bunch of people went to an Angels game together. And the Angels came from behind and won. So our, our Angels fans are very happy. You can't get them to stop talking about it, can you? <laughs> this morning, I sort of want to talk about that. But, but not with the angels. When, when something exciting happens, though, in our lives, we talk about it, right? Like a come from behind win in the last inning or second to last. Actually, last inning, wasn't it? Or second to last, I don't know. Eighth inning, okay. I don't know, I had to wake up and, yeah. The Dodger game was over by that point. No, just kidding. <laughs> but when something exciting happens, we talk about it. And, and this morning, we want to, as we come to the Gospel of Luke again, we want to think about, is that the way we treat our Christianity? Is it something that we get so excited about that we have to talk about it, that we have to share it? Are we on mission, is one of the ways I like to think about it. Because God has given us a task, as long as we breathe the air on this earth, he's given us a task. Are we on mission? Are we about that task? In our core values of the church that are on the wall, our first core value is outreach. And um, one of the things that that means is we are always trying to share the gospel with people. We are always looking to how can I share the gospel? Who do I need to share the gospel with? Because that is the first step in discipleship. We say as a church that we are about discipling our communities for him, for Christ. The first step is outreach, is sharing the gospel with them. One of the things that we've done before, and, and if you're newer with us, this is your opportunity to join us in that, but I, I continually encourage us to be thinking, who in your life needs Jesus? Who do you know that needs Jesus? Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's your boss, um, but who in your life needs Jesus? And if you, if you haven't done this before, I'd encourage you to write that name right at the top there. And, and this morning, I just want to be a little more interactive with this. Who are some of the people in your lives that need Jesus? Talk with me a little bit. Neighbors, okay? Yeah. What was that? Son, absolutely. And that, that comes real close to the heart, doesn't it? Yeah. Your brother. Oh, man, yeah. Son-in-law, grandparents, parents. I'm going to tear up right here because we're talking about people in our lives, in our communities that need Christ. So how do we stay on mission? How do we reach them? This morning as we come to the, the Gospel of Luke, we're coming to the ministry of John the Baptist. And what's really interesting is John the Baptist had the task of getting people ready, getting their hearts ready to meet Jesus, to encounter Jesus. And, and he was paving the way, tilling the soil, so to speak, for people to hear the message of Christ, to follow Christ, and to be with Christ. And so it's a great opportunity for us to think about outreach, think of those people in our lives that need Jesus, and how am I reaching them? How am I preparing their hearts you know, one of the things I always struggled with growing up is why John the Baptist? And, and I, I know it's God's idea, and we just have to say, okay, God's idea is perfect, right? But why not just Jesus? Why did we need John the Baptist? But we know that from prophecy, it's, it's, it's been the plan all along, and we know that's how God works. And, and as, as I was thinking about that this week, 
I, I was watching our kids in the morning because Susie started work a, a week ago and the kids haven't started school yet. So I have them in the morning and there's certain things that I want the kids to get done every morning, right? Like wake up. Maybe eat breakfast. I, apparently brushing your teeth is a big one. Um, no, we, we have this list of things to, to get done and we're going through the list. But when it comes to uh, about 15, 20 minutes before Susie's going to get home, it's like it goes into another gear, right? Because the kids are like, mom's coming home soon. Dad wants the dishes done so she doesn't come home to dishes. And dad wants this done. And dad, so we have to do, and boom, everything gets done. And then Susie walks in and we're like, yeah, it's all done. It's been, yeah, we, we worked hard at this. And she doesn't know it was mostly the last 20 minutes. No, it, it, the stuff does take longer. But there's something about the, that preparation, knowing something's coming. And so me coming to the kids and saying, mom's going to be here soon, does something, right? Now, I know I've heard it from you men on women's retreat. Because on Sunday morning, all the men split early afterwards because they know mom's coming home soon and we have to get the house cleaned up. There are three days of dishes in the sink and, and, and the beds are... I, I know how this works. Same thing happens when dad's coming home from, from work and there's things that dad has to be done. Mom steps in and is the forerunner, Right? And says, dad's going to be home soon. Now that has helped me understand John the Baptist a little bit. He's coming before Jesus saying, the Messiah's coming. Get ready. Let's get our hearts ready. And that is the mission of John the Baptist. And that is an essential mission. It's not just an extra thing that we, we fill an extra chapter of the Gospels. This is part of God's plan to help hearts turn to him. God's desire is for people of every nation and every tribe and tongue, every person to come to him. And so we come to Luke chapter 3 this morning with that in mind, that this is the mission that, that God has intentionally put John the Baptist on the stage to prepare people's hearts so that way they're ready to hear from Jesus. They're ready to hear from the Messiah. Now, not everyone got ready. And some people opposed him. But those that were open, those that would listen and repent were ready for Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And this morning we're going to look at the first 22 verses, which really encompasses almost all of John the Baptist's ministry for for Luke. And and as we study it, I want us to study it in in two ways this morning and and ask ourselves two different um, questions. What can we learn from the character of John the Baptist how he did ministry, what his mission was, and what can we learn from his message? What can we learn from his character, and what can we learn from his message? See, as I was telling Phil, one of our elders this morning, it's interesting as you read through this, do we apply this as we need to repent, and we need to hear this message, or do we apply this that we are to carry on the ministry of John the Baptist and help others repent? And, and, and all week I'm like, okay, which direction do I go on Sunday? Which direction do I go on Sunday? And, and God just really impressed on me. You can't separate the two. It is a message to us. It is a message to our heart to repent and be right with God. And then it's a message to share that with others. Because if I divorce this idea that I should be repentant and I should need God and I should be walking with God, if I take that away from my proclamation of the gospel... I have an empty shell of the gospel that has no power. 
And so both have to happen. So this morning as we read through it, you'll see that we're going both directions at once because you have to. We need to live the gospel and we need to share the gospel. And that's really the point of the morning. We need to live the gospel and we need to share the gospel. We're pointing people to Christ with our actions and our words. So we come to Luke chapter 3. And the first thing Luke does in the first section there is he gives us some history. And the first point for the verses 1 through 6 is visible. That's the word there. And I have five different words to help us understand how we point people to Christ. Visible. We need to live repentance, experience forgiveness, and help others do the same. Live repentance. It needs to be part of our lives. Experience forgiveness. See what God has done in our lives and then help others to do the same. It's hard to help others do something we're not experiencing ourselves. So we come to verse 1, and and the first thing that that Luke does as the good historian he is, is he sets the stage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Your eyes just glazed over. There are a lot of names there. And actually, I think that's one of Luke's points. Because your eyes didn't glaze over on John the Baptist and Jesus. Why? You know them, right? Now, these people, your eyes glazed over because you don't know them. You don't know about them. They're just names. Yeah, you've probably heard Caesar, but Tiberius Caesar? That's that's sort of weird. And Pontius Pilate, you've heard of. Okay, we get him. Herod, but this isn't Herod the Great, so this isn't even the guy you think it is. And then his his brother Philip. And and so we have these names. Here's the deal, and I I want to explain this briefly. These are the bigwigs of the time. These are the people in power. This is the emperor, and and it's a... a, um, decreasing scale of authority. And so these are the ones everyone would have known at the time. John and Jesus, nobody would have known at the time. They're from Podunk, Little Galilee. Do you see, do you see the interesting thing? We remember the two that God brought onto the scene. Everyone forgets about these other guys. But ju- just by way of a little history lesson, because this is really interesting to sort of ground what's happening here. And this is one of the ways... We know and we can be certain of the veracity, the truth of this. Remember, that's one of Luke's, Luke's goals. I want you to be sure, to be certain of your salvation. So he gives him dates and people and, and eyewitnesses he can go talk to. This is, this is such an important part of witnesses and, and knowing that this is true. But to give us the, the scale, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Okay, we've heard of Caesar Augustus, right? How how do you know about Caesar Augustus? You said something. (laughs) The Christmas story, right? Caesar Augustus was in power when Jesus was born. And so we saw that in Luke 2, and that's, that's who we normally think of. But he didn't rule forever. In fact, he only ruled ruled to about AD 14, when Jesus was maybe 18, 19 years old. And then after him came Tiberius Caesar. So they would take the name Caesar. So these are the Roman emperors. These are the largest rule of the time, okay? So Tiberius Caesar is now in charge. In fact, there's a a city on the Sea of Galilee, Tiberius, that those that have been on a, a 
Israel trip with us, you know Ronan hates that city. Um, but it's after a Roman emperor. That's why. That's one of the reasons. And so that would be like our president, okay? And, and I'm not trying to, to compare character or anything. I'm just status, role, okay? President is over the whole nation. These are over the whole realm, okay? And so that's where he starts, Tiberius Caesar. Then he comes down to Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, um, and Philip and Lysanias. And these are now the, the area governors, so to speak, the area people in charge of different areas in the, this part of the Roman Empire. And to, again, to give us a, a little bit of history, Herod the Great, um, who ruled until about 4 B.C., Herod the Great passed away, and he was the builder. He had this ego that wouldn't stop. He split his kingdom and four, into four different parts, and his sons took over those parts, at least for as long as they could hold them. And in fact, I have a map here. If you see the little yellow area, this was one of his son, Archelaus, got the area. And that's Judea, Samaria, and Inamia. And that's where Jerusalem is. That's where Bethlehem is. But he couldn't hold it. 6 AD, he gets deposed. Rome comes in, those, those Caesars we talk about. Rome comes in, removes them, and they gave it to governors. Now, when we come to, to John the Baptist, the governor or the prefect in charge is Pontius Pilate. And do you see how God in his sovereignty is bringing all the pieces together? That's who's going to be in charge and one of the key figures in the crucifixion. And so Pontius Pilate now is ruling this, and he ruled from 26 to 36. We have some dates, if you like dates. Um, And then we come to the orange reason, and Herod Antipas, one of the, the other sons, and this is the Herod that whenever it's referred to in the adulthood of Jesus and John the Baptist, it's Herod Antipas. And he ruled the Galilee area, and he, he got thrown in for fun some area east of the Jordan there. But that was his area. Now, he was ruling at this time, and he continued to rule until about 38, 39 A.D. Now, Philip, another son, which we, we have a Philip here, Philip got the blue area. Okay, and so that comes to northern Israel. Um, the Golan Heights is where it would be today. Okay, so Herod Antipas is here, and then Philip gets here, the Tetrarch. And Tetrarch means a, a rule over the fourth of the kingdom. And he gets Caesarea Philippi up here, the Golan Heights. This goes into Syria here, and Syria is up in here, and so Syria is all through here. In fact, he's the one that named Caesarea Philippi. It's after Philip. It's after his name. And he wanted a place that was named after him. It seems to be what you did if you were in power. And then for whatever reason, Luke throws in Lysanias, who's up here to the north. And this is the only time we hear about him. Um, and so this is the kingdom. You have the emperor. And now you have the, the governors, so to speak, the Herods, who are an, a ruler supposedly over Israel and from the Jewish descent and Jewish line. Then we come down to the next verse, verse 2, and you have Annas and Caiaphas, right? And, and they're called the high priest, but there could only be one high priest. And the story goes, Annas was the high priest. He did something that ticked Rome off. And so they came in and deposed him. And he ended up putting his son-in-law in, installed as the high priest. Because that's not keeping power in the family at all. And so it was largely viewed by the Jews that Annas was still the high priest, but Caiaphas was, was acting in that role. And so in a sense, they had two high priests at the time, even though they were only supposed to be one. 
It's the baseball manager that gets thrown out of the game and manages from the, the clubhouse. He's still there doing his work. And so that's the history in, in five minutes or less. And, and he's showing the, the factuality of the story, but he's also showing the power structure that Jesus came onto the scene and John the Baptist came on the scene under. You know, we, we might complain, and, and for us, going back to, you have president, governor, mayor is probably the best way of thinking that. You have um, different levels of authority. But we sometimes think, man, it is really hard in the world we live in today to share Christ. It is getting more and more difficult, and, and I acknowledge it is in, in so many different ways. But it is nothing like trying to minister under Caesar and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas who were corrupt to the bone and had basically destroyed the priesthood and destroyed what it meant to follow God. And so Luke is setting that as a stage for a new kingdom to come on the scene. And so John comes on the scene in the next verse, about 27 to 29 AD. There's, there's a lot of clues in there that we could get into, but it's, it's somewhere in there. And then Jesus doesn't come on the scene for a year or two after John the Baptist. And so he's preparing the way and not even knowing when it's going to start. He's waiting just like everyone else, but he's preparing the way. So that's the history. The location that we see in verses 2 and 3. We see during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, who we've already been introduced to in chapter 1, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we know that John the Baptist is, is doing his ministry largely in the wilderness. Now, I grew up going to the Sierras. And as you go into the Sierras, as you go into the forest, it says now, interest, now entering the wilderness or the Inyo wilderness or whatever it is. So my idea of wilderness is lush forest, okay? Let me show you a picture of where John the Baptist ministered. Very lush. You can just camp under some of those trees. This is the area just north of the Dead Sea, along the Jordan River, a little bit west of the Jordan River, this is the desert. This is the wilderness. If you were to, to think of it as the Jordan on your right and you go up and Jerusalem is maybe 20 miles inland, but that 20 miles is as desolate as can be. And this is where John the Baptist ministered. Next picture is um, here. This is actually um, a little more lush. I don't know whether you can tell, but there's a bush here and there. And so this is actually really nice territory to minister in at the time. Um, another, another slide. You did have some trees. Where there were some streams and where there were some springs, you would get some trees. But you get the idea of the terrain, right? Rocky. And this is where John, God calls John to minister. And, and not only was it representative of so much to them, uh, of, of coming out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, which, by the way, it's this kind of terrain that the Israelites wandered in, too, for 40 years. So this was not your, your campground that we could enjoy for 40 years. This was harsh and difficult terrain. But I really think what's happening here is God is using this to symbolize the state of their hearts and the state of the nation and what it's like to be a heart without Christ. It's dry and desolate and rocky. Is there another picture, Don? I think there's a fourth one. This is a picture of the Jordan River, the mighty Jordan. 
And as you can tell, it's actually not that mighty, especially by the time you get down by the Dead Sea. Um, it's, been, it's been used for irrigation and crops and all kinds of things. Probably was a little bigger at the time. But you did have some trees along the Jordan. And this is right around the area where, where quite possibly John the Baptist was baptizing people and ministering. And so you come out of those hills, you, you get to the Jordan with just a little bit of trees around it. And this is the setting for the, the story we have today. And then we get to the message in verse 3. And this is where we talk about living repentance and experiencing forgiveness. In, at the end of verse 3, um, after he goes to all the region around the Jordan, he's, he's moving around to all the little towns and villages there. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now we think of, of that word repentance a lot of different ways. In fact, what comes to mind when you think of repentance? Turning away from sin? Change of heart? You guys are really good. Yeah, so sometimes people with repentance will think, oh, it means I'm just really sorry. I feel bad about what I've done. No, it means to turn around, to change, to change your heart. And that is John's message. It's this is what you're coming out of, this desolate, desolation of the, the heart. Turn around, change, and follow God. If I had to put a definition on repentance, it would be to alter one's direction and perspective to match God's truth. To alter one's direction and perspective to match God's truth. It's not just changing behavior, it's changing your heart. And it's not just changing your heart, it's changing your behavior. The, the two go hand in hand. And so repentance always is turning away from sin and turning toward God's way. It's humbly acknowledging I was wrong, a word we can say. I was wrong. I will change and I need God to do it. And so this is, this is John's mission. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Now, now, just in case we think, oh yeah, that's just him, what, what Luke is going to do is he's starting ministry with this verse in, in John's ministry. At the end of the gospel, he says the same thing, but he applies it to us. In Luke 24, he says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are to testify to this. And so we see that John is calling, starts by calling people to repentance for forgiveness of sins or repentance leading to forgiveness of sins. And at the end of the gospel, we find out we're supposed to do the same thing. We have marching orders. We have a task, and it's to, to share with people the need for repentance and the joy of forgiveness of sins. But we have to first experience that repentance. See, too many times I think we take that word really lightly. And, and we play at repentance. We want the benefits of salvation without actually repenting and, and feeling the weight of our sin without actually saying, I was wrong and I need Christ. And so part of this instruction by, by John is to, to turn 
to repent, but to submit to God's instruction, to be humble and say, I will come under God's will. A couple of other things. You see the word baptism there. And we automatically think of our baptismal and and baptism. And, And so we have to explain some of these things a little bit. Baptism for them wasn't necessarily tied to Christianity. There was no Christianity yet. But baptism was used in a couple of different ways at the time. One of the ways was in, in proselyte baptism. To become a Jew, you would, you would go through all of the, the ritual and everything, and at the end you'd be baptized, which signified a cleansing from sin and becoming one of God's people. And so it was a way of initiating or bringing someone into membership or in, into, into the life of being an, an Israelite or being a Jew. One of the other ways that they would have thought of baptism as soon as they saw this is every week before they came to worship, they had to cleanse themselves. They had mikvahs, they called them, little ritual baths out in front of the synagogues or in front of the temple. And whenever you came to Christ, you cleansed yourself. You went in, dipped, and and it was a symbol of saying, I am clean in my heart before God. And so that's the, the environment that John now takes baptism And he says, this is publicly saying, I repent and am going to follow God. It is is not a private act. He didn't go around the corner of the Jordan one by one and say, let's secretly do this. It was a public display that said, I need forgiveness of sins. And I repent of my sin. And when we think about repentance and when we think about live repentance, and that first part of the point is repentance is always open. Repentance is, true repentance will always be shown in a way that is visible to others. I, I can remember working with a young man who, who had, had been really struggling with sin and people knew that he was in sin and, and he came to me and said, you know what, I was wrong, I repent. Praise God, let's talk. And, and as we talked, I said, you know, you, you have, your, your sin has been visible to so many people I encourage you that we need to talk to those people and you need to be open about your repentance. No. That is too far. I will be embarrassed. People will look down on me. And I had to look at them and say, then you haven't repented. You're still about your own way. You're you're still trying to keep control of the situation, trying to manage your image in front of people. It's still about you. It's not about a heart broken under your sin. That conversation didn't go particularly well after that. But it was the truth of God's word. And, and, And praise God, that person eventually repented in a way that they were just crushed by their sin and they're like, I don't care who knows. In fact, I'd rather people know so they don't go down the same path. Okay, now, now we're talking repentance. And so John's by, by the Jordan River and people come and they say, I, I, I am a sinner. I need to repent. I need God. And he's like, okay, let's go get dunked. And he takes them out in the water and says, let's publicly proclaim that you need God. Wow. That is awesome and tough at the same time. But it, it's, it's a great illustration to us of what our repentance needs to be. It needs to be open. It needs to be a, a public way. Now, I'm not saying we confess every sin to every person we meet on the street. That's not what I'm saying. But in the body of Christ and in the right circles, 
we are open with our struggles and with our sin and that we need Christ. It's an outward sign. Baptism here was an outward sign of repentance for sin. And, and my, my question is, or my, my, my thought is, as we go about sharing Christ with others and being on mission, if my neighbors and if my brother and if my parents or grandparents or son, all the people you mentioned, if they don't see reality in me, if they don't see a genuineness in me, that, yeah, I'm a sinner too. And I need Christ just as much as you have. You do. And I've come to Him and I've repented and He has forgiven me of my sins. If they don't see that in you, your Christianity looks false. It looks fake. And so if we're to start bridging that gap and pointing people to Christ, we need to live in a real genuine way that says, I'm not perfect, but Christ has saved me. And that's hard to do. Sometimes we want to put on these, these perfect faces and perfect images. Everybody's perfect on Instagram. And that's what we're used to. But we need to get real with the people that we want to reach for Christ. And they need to see our struggles. It, it's, I can remember talking to someone and I was talking on the golf course and I was talking just about um, marriages and helping people with marriages. And he looked me in the eye and he said, you mean Christians struggle in their marriages? Yeah. Yeah. And by the grace of God, we move forward. How does someone not know that? How are we living so closed and private that people don't see the reality of life? Because if they don't see the reality of life, they won't see the solution of Christ. See what I mean? And when, when, when it says that John was baptizing them, I see an openness. I see a public display. You know, one of the things is the baptism of repentance for forgiveness. And this sort of go, goes against one of the other things. Sometimes we think of sharing the gospel as you're a sinner, you're going to hell. Man, you're going to be judged if you don't come to Christ. And while that's part of the message, maybe not in that tone, what, is, what does John say? What's his message? It's repentance to what? Forgiveness. And so when you're talking to your neighbor and when you're talking with others and when the gospel comes up, man, talk about forgiveness. Yes, we, we need to point people that, uh, to our need of Christ, but the solution is forgiveness in Christ. There's freedom in that complete forgiveness. We miss the pe- best part of the message sometime under the guise of I'm going to be bold and confront sin. No, the message is forgiveness. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross when He paid the price for my sin. He now offers forgiveness and freedom from that sin. That's a message worth talking about. Verses 4 through 6 go on. And He talks about, He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 here, verses 3 through 5. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, And so much of these verses come back to Isaiah, which is why I love doing Luke after Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. 
And as we talked about in Isaiah, the imagery there is when a king would come to town, they'd, they'd actually go out and get the roads ready, fill in the potholes, get the rocks out of it, make it level. You don't want the king's chariot falling over and him dying or something outside your town. And so you'd, you'd get ready for the king and put up the banners and, and have the people lining the streets. And that's the picture here of what John the Baptist was doing. The king is coming. Get your hearts ready. And there's so much symbolism there. As, as crooked paths are made straight and, and repentance takes the crookedness of our heart and the, the darkness of our heart and cleans it up and allows Christ to change that and make that straight. Live repentance, experience forgiveness, and help others do the same. See, what's interesting is John's message of repentance was preceding Jesus. And that's true in your life. It's true in my life. When we are repentant, when we have that kind of humble spirit, then Jesus can do something with us. Then he can meet us. Then he can work. But while I'm stubbornly holding on to my way is right, I am, I am blocking Jesus' voice in my head, in my heart. We need to be repentant soft soil that can meet Christ. Do I have a humble, repentant spirit? Then I can encourage others to do the same thing. You know, sometimes I hear from people, I, I, I just don't, don't see God in my life. I don't feel close to God. If we understand here the, the, the work of preparation and the, the aspect of repentance in that, then maybe the answer is there's some stuff in my life I'm not repentant of. There's some stuff I'm holding on to. Because until my heart is completely open to what God wants to do, I'm not going to hear Him fully. So the first thing about pointing people to Christ is to be visible with repentance, with forgiveness, and help others do the same. Second point as we move on through these verses is fruit is the next word, fruit. Repentance is only genuine when it changes actions. And John comes down pretty hard on this. Let's let's look at what he says in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And and Matthew says that this was directed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were a large part of the crowds. But he's saying it where everyone can hear it. And, And they're all coming to be baptized, right? It's the thing to do. Go out to the beautiful wilderness. Go to the Jordan and be baptized by John because everyone's thinking, and I don't know everyone, but the thought is, okay, this is how you get close to God, right? It's the latest fad maybe for some of them. And so they're all coming out. This group is coming to John and they're like, baptize us. We're repentant. We want to be close to God. And John's like, whoa, whoa. Most of you aren't repentant. You're just going through the actions. Your heart's not there. And so he, he turns to the crowds that are, are there to be baptized by them. And he says these words, you brood of vipers poisonous snakes who warned you to flee from the wrath to come and and the idea there is okay who told you to come out that this would save you from god's wrath getting dunked in the jordan that's not what it's about he he goes on in verse 8 bear fruits in keeping with repentance anyone can say you repent but until i see it in your life it's not real and do not begin to say yourselves we have abraham as our father For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, man, he goes after him. A, a couple of different ways we're going to see. The, the, the first way in these verses and, and is that he's calling them each to individually repent. Each of us individually is called to repent. You can't fake repentance. You can't just say the words. And you can't get in on someone else's coattails. One of their arguments with Abraham, that, that argument was, well, we have a really good spiritual heritage. And so we're in. We're good. And, and you, you've heard the statement that there are no spiritual grandchildren in heaven. Your mom and dad, if they've given you a great spiritual heritage, that doesn't mean anything for whether or not you're right with God. It gives you a foundation to be right, to get right with God. But you can't get in on mom and dad's faith. You can't get in by coming to church every week and sitting here. Sitting in these chairs doesn't make you a great Christian any more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. It just doesn't. It's about the heart and it's about a repentance, about following God. And so he's calling them out on this. He, he calls them vipers because it's false repentance. And these are the spiritual leaders that are misleading people. And he says, let your actions show it. Bear fruit. If you're going by, by who you know, you're not going far. I, I love the story of Aaron Burr. And, you know, Aaron Burr shot Hamilton in the duel. He also had some illegitimate children. I mean, just his life was a mess. His dad was a pastor. His grandfather was Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers that we have. Did his spiritual heritage do much for his spirituality? No, because it's his heart that matters. His heart. John goes on and and, and he's saying, yeah, you may be Abraham's children and and you may think that that gets gets you God's favor somehow, but I tell you, God's able to take these stones and you saw the train he's in. He can take these rocks and raise up more children of Abraham. In fact, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. You're about to be cut off because your heart is not right with God. Now, now it's interesting. How did people respond to this? Um, Because there's several different ways you can respond. And the leaders we know throughout the the story of, of the Gospels, the spiritual leaders rejected. They were offended. How could you say that? What do you mean, Abraham, doesn't mean anything? No, no, we're, we're Jews. God will let us in. <clears throat> and they had this false security of salvation. But the others, the crowds in verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And I love that answer because they're saying, okay, we get the point. So tell us, tell us what it means to be repentant. Tell us how to walk with God. And the second part of this is repentance shows in everyday life decisions and how we treat people. Jesus gets real, or John gets real practical here. And he goes to their decisions, what they do with business decisions, what they do with with people and how they treat people. And he he addresses three different groups, the, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. And he says in 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
This isn't rocket science. It says if you're repentant, you'll be generous. You'll share your stuff. You'll help others. You'll meet needs. The tunic was the undershirt that would go under the, the outer coat. And they often would wear two. And he's like, if you have two, give one away. Repentance and a heart for God results in a love for people. And he goes on to say, tax collectors. They, they also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. This, this isn't hard. Now, now keep in mind at the time, the tax collectors, that position, you, you'd, you'd get together and you'd bid, on the, bid for, with Rome on the ability to collect taxes. And you paid a certain amount for that and you were supposed to collect a certain amount of taxes. And so then what they would do, since they had sole right to do that with Rome, they would double and triple the taxes, pay Rome what they had bid, and keep the rest. And so these people were really hated in society. They were hated because A, they were working with Rome. B, they were ripping everyone off they, they dealt with. And they came and they were repentant because repentance is for anyone. And John says, collect only what you're supposed to. Be honest. Show integrity. Then he goes on to the soldiers in 14. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Be content with your wages. And the soldiers, they, they had power, they had position. And so they would come and, and, and they only got paid a certain amount, probably not very much, we think, looking at history. And so what they would do is, is they would come and they'd be sort of the mafia. And they'd get a lot of extra money from people for protection or, or for fear of, of not being protected. And they would extort money. And John says, D- don't. Don't be threatening. Don't be, be falsely accusing someone to try to get their money. Be content with your wages. The fruit of repentance is a, a generous spirit, an honest approach to life, to be fair and content. And this isn't exhaustive. But John is making the point, you can't just say, I repent. You do it. You can't just say you're a Christian. You act like a Christian. It needs to change your heart. You know, we, we mentioned that repentance is, is making a U-turn or turning around. And, and I've, I've told you about my experiences with GPS and Siri or whatever. And, and I just love to mess with Siri's mind. I think it offends her. Um, maybe not. And so sometimes I'll just go a different direction on purpose. And, and what does she start to say? turn around. In 500 feet, turn around. I sort of chuckle as I pass that. I don't know what it says about me to have control over my phone. but um, <laughs> and, and sometimes I just want to see how long she'll do that. In, in half a mile, turn around. Well, how do you tell whether or not I believe Siri's directions? I don't know what you said. <laughs> what? Whether I follow them or not, right? If I don't turn around, I don't believe the directions. My actions show what's in my heart. The same is true, guys, when we say we we love God. When we say we, we need forgiveness of our sins. Then do we stop? Then do we turn around? Do we make changes? I'm not saying we're perfect. But are we showing the fruit, the fruit of repentance? Again, 
coming back to the, the, the bigger purpose of this passage is how do we point people to Christ? One of the ways you do that is to show people that you're repentant and following Christ. If you're pulling side business deals and, and, and not honest and not full of integrity in your work and then you share Christ with someone, don't. Don't. Because your fruit is different from what you're saying. If you're witnessing to your neighbors and what they've seen is you yelling at your family every night, don't. Fix the fruit first. Then go tell them about Jesus. Tell them the issues you've had and how Jesus helped change you. Then you have a story. But we've got to make sure we're bearing fruit. That we have a genuine Christianity worth following, worth sharing. Moving through the the next seven verses pretty quickly. Number three, humility. Humbly point people to Jesus instead of making it about you. Verse 15, and, and look at the example of John the Baptist here. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, no, 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 no. Okay, I added that in. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And we see John putting himself in the lesser role and and lifting Jesus. It's all about pointing to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. And even that imagery, the strap of the sandals, that was a, a particular important thing for them because when you came into a house, the servant would undo your, your sandals and wash your feet. Just the greatest job ever. And, and in fact, they were so, they, they thought that was such a menial job that a disciple of a rabbi would do everything a servant would do except this task. Because this was a step too far. You would never expect your disciple to take off your filthy, gross sandals. And John the Baptist uses this. He goes, no, no, I, I'm not even up to the level that I can untie his sandals. That's how great Jesus is. And he's pointing to Jesus. He says, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you salvation. You'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And fire. He will judge sin. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think we have a picture of that. They would take these... these, giant, almost rake-looking things and throw the wheat up after it had been trampled and crushed. And the shaft would fly away in the wind off to the side. The grain would fall down. And the picture here is Jesus is going to take the real grain close to him and he's going to, he's going to burn the chaff and judge the chaff. And so John is saying, he's greater than me in authority. His ministry is greater than me. He's greater than me in his, his ability to judge. Everything is pointing people back to Christ. Everything. I love that about his spirit. And, and if we're talking about how do we reach those people that are on our hearts, are we intentional about pointing them to Christ? When we get together, have we thought about ways that we can just talk about what Christ has done? Just about how, how amazing it is to walk with God. About the answered prayer. Are, are we talking about, or is it just about me and my stories? You know, we, we, we all go to family things and you know the person that is always going to one-up your story, always going to have a better one, and you leave knowing everything they did five times over for the last month. 
Don't be that person if you're reaching someone for Christ. Let's get over ourselves and realize, man, my life is to be pointing to Christ. That's what this is about. Now, again, number two has to happen first. We have to have fruit. We have to have Christ doing something in our lives to have something to talk about. But with the neighbor that needs Christ, do we ever intentionally point to Christ? Lift Christ up. When people walk away, a question to ask, when people walk away from a conversation with you, what are they remembering? What's their takeaway? Are they remembering you or Jesus? Are they remembering details about your life or that you loved them and cared for them like Jesus does? Reaching our communities for Christ is actually pretty simple. Because you and I don't save anyone. We just point people the right direction. And the Holy Spirit does the work. But I've got to decrease and Jesus has to increase. 18 through 20. Number four there is boldness. Share the gospel even when it is hard or costly. Share the gospel even when it is hard or costly. I, I, I understand this one. There are times that I am ashamed to say I don't say anything because I'm like, what will they think of me? What will this do to my relationship with them? And that, that's shameful. And I know I'm not the only one that thinks that sometimes. John here, look at these verses. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It was, it was the good news. He keeps going. But Herod the Tetrarch, that's the, the guy over Galilee, who had, been, who, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. And, and Luke's here giving us sort of the, the, the future part of the story, because this happens after Jesus is on the scene. But we find out that John shared the gospel even when it was hard, even with leaders. Now, now Herod, he had, had divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, got, got her to divorce his brother, and, and that's already prohibited. You don't marry your brother's wife unless your brother has died. Um, turns out it's a little worse because the girl is also another brother's daughter. Just think about that for a minute. And John says, that's wrong. You, he's right, by the way. You need to repent. You need Christ. You need forgiveness. And so as opposed to the groups that we just saw their response, Herod locks him up and eventually takes his head. Our response to confrontation about sin and exposure of sin in our lives says so much about us. And we as messengers of Christ need to be bold and share the gospel even when it's hard or costly. But we also need to make sure we're open to, to dealing with the sin in our lives. Now, I, I need to, to add just a little note on this. Pick your battles well. And what I mean by that is if it's not a sin issue and if it's not a gospel issue, that's not the hill to die on. We are dying on a whole lot of hills on Facebook that are destroying our testimony that don't matter. Does that make sense? And I could go into all kinds of illustrations and, and politics is one of them. 
So much of politics are like the, the, the power structure here. They're not going to be remembered. What's going to be remembered is where are people with Christ? And I'm not saying we don't take stands on things. We talk about this in the office a lot. There are some things that I'm willing to... Abortion is something I'll take a stand on because that's a life. That, that's a human life. That's the dignity of life. That's a moral sin issue to me. But there are a whole lot of things that, yes, I have opinions on, but do I need to get all up in arms over? Probably not. Facebook is not where you're going to convince anyone anyway. Right? Just a poll. Has anyone in this room ever had someone on Facebook come back to you and say, you're right, I was wrong? Not one. And so we inflame and we distract from the gospel. We're pointing people to our issues instead of to Christ. And we're bold about the wrong things. Stand up for Christ. Say that you're a Christian. Say that there's sin in this world and the only answer is Christ. Those are great things to stand for. But no, you'll be persecuted for it. You'll be harassed. You'll be made fun of. But that's worth it. Thomas Beckett, Archbishop of Canterbury, leader in the church, who was also a friend of the king, worked with the king. And at one point, the king decided that his ways were more important than the Bible and the church. And Thomas Beckett at that point said, no, no, this is where I draw the line with biblical authority and with the church. He was murdered in the cathedral because he stood against the king and for God. That's what good boldness looks like. Not that we're all going to be killed, but we stand for the right things. The last point there in your notes to make sure we fill them out, identification. What's interesting is Luke only gives us two verses on the baptism of Jesus because he's fitting it into a bigger picture of of ministry and pointing people to Christ. In this case, Christ then starting his ministry. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Two verses. It's all we get in Luke. And so we're not going to spend a whole message on that here either because Luke, Luke is brief on it. The other Gospels give a lot more. But really the, the point here that Luke is making is in the middle of John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus come and he's baptized. Did Jesus need to repent? No, no, it's heresy to say he did. No, he was sinless. So why was he baptized? Have you thought about that? And, and, and if you look, and if you look at all the gospel accounts, he was baptized to fulfill the law, but to identify with the people he came to save. And so he's identifying with John's baptism of repentance, saying, yes, this is good. This is right. And, and it's really looking forward to when he identifies with our sin by taking it on himself on the cross. A sinless man that paid the price for every human that's ever lived of sin. And he's been baptized. He's praying. Luke's the only one that mentions prayer. And one of his focuses on prayer. And Jesus is praying. Think about that. Last week, Jesus grew. This week, Jesus prays. He's showing dependence on God. 
And at that point, the Holy Spirit comes down and God the Father says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this marks the beginning of the ministry of Jesus because God starts it and God marks it and he puts his stamp and confirms Jesus' ministry. But what I think about is why did Jesus do this? He was identifying with the people he was trying to reach. And that's why it's our fifth word, identification. If we're to reach people for Christ, we've got to make connections with them. We've got to identify them. I'm not saying sin with them. It's not what I'm saying. But find things you have in common. If they love the angels, love the angels. Fine. <laughs> Talk about sports. If, if they love a team you don't like, find that out. Find out what they do. Find out where they work and ask questions about that over, over the course of weeks, months. But identify with where they're at. Talk about kids. People love to talk about their kids or grandkids. And, and that's been a, a connection for us to tie into people. But identify with the people we're trying to reach. The ministry of John the Baptist. We're to repent. We're to have that heart. We're to follow the message, but then we're to share that with others. I challenge us to be on mission. Find ways to point people to Christ. Don't forget about the people you mentioned. Let me pray for you guys. Lord God, at the beginning, we all thought of people that we know that need Christ. And Lord, just getting through, maybe there's guilt that we haven't talked to them about Christ or, or maybe there's frustration that we don't know how to or we have and it's been rejected, Lord. Let, let's get past that and help us to move forward from here and say this is our mission, to point people to you, to show them in our lives that what repentance looks like, what forgiveness looks like, to show them what fruit looks like. Lord, to be bold and, and, and help them see who you are, to point people to you. Lord, help us to be serious about praying for and sharing the gospel with those that need you. Lord, help us to, be, to continue the work of John the Baptist and prepare hearts for the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name.